2: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check
0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the author and social historian Stephen Bourne. Stephen's latest book, Under Fire, Black Britain in Wartime, explores the experiences of black people in Britain between 1939 and 45. Our production editor, Spencer Mizen called him to find out more.
3: Stephen, your new book, Under Fire, Black Britain in Wartime, documents the experiences of black citizens on the home front and in the services during the Second World War. Now, just to give our listeners a little context, how many people are we talking about here and, and, and where did they hail from?
4: I would answer this. I've I've said this in the introduction to the book. We'll never know what the numbers are. Statistics in relation to black people in Britain, black people in the armed services in the Second World War. um, Unlike America, we did not include ethnicity in the census records, we did not include ethnicity in the Um, recruitment papers of the army, the navy and the air force. So there are no accurate figures. So what I've done is quote various historians who give very conflicting figures. I don't know where they got their figures from. What I have done, which has never been done before, and I'm very proud of this, I trawled through the 1939 Register for England and Wales, which was a kind of census, if you like, taken in September 1939 for the government and so on and so forth, the authorities, to try and establish who was who, where they were living, how old they were for the um, war work. And I found, I wanted to find, my target was to find 100 black Londoners, and I did. Black people that I knew of uh, or knew about, and a few that I didn't. Some outside London as well, but it's mainly 100 black Londoners, with their addresses, their dates of birth, their country of origin, if I knew it. So they could, as you asked, they could have come from Barbados, Sierra Leone, Cardiff, Liverpool, the East End of London, Jamaica, Trinidad, the list is endless. But there was this huge number of black people in Britain in 1939 when the war started,
3: so um what were their what were their motivations for throwing their weight behind the British war effort in the Second World War?
4: They were British. They were British subjects. They belonged to what was then known as the British Empire. They were raised most of of the people in my book were raised in what were known as the colonies. They joined for different reasons. Some joined for adventure, to get out of the colony and, and see a bit of the world. Some joined because they believed in supporting the mother country. Some joined because there may have been a way of reinforcing their argument for independence. Of course, independence came much later after the war, but it was a move in that direction. But as when I interviewed Sam King... Um, who was a Jamaican who joined the RAF in 1944, he said, Stephen, there was no choice. We had to join because either, he said the British Empire was bad, he said, but it wasn't as bad as Nazi Germany. And I think I kind of feel that, and other uh, eld- black elders that I interviewed said the same. They d- the, Did that know,
3: surprise you that they said that?
4: No, because we don't realise that They were part of the British Empire and the Nazis would have overrun their islands and their countries. Um, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, all these places, Barbados, Trinidad, they would have been occupied by the Nazis. And who knows what would have happened to them, but it wouldn't have been very pleasant. So, yes, absolutely, I understand why they joined up.
3: And what was their perception of Britain before um, they joined up and came to Britain?
4: Well, again, it would have varied depending on what the outlook of the individual was. Some were just enamoured of the king and queen and the mother country. That was the way they were raised. But others were more politically motivated and wanted better treatment uh, uh, in their own countries and better job opportunities and education. I mean, don't forget, in the colonies, they had a British education. They were taught the same as kids in Britain. So they would have learnt about Queen Victoria, which is where the term mother country apparently came from. That's what some of them told me. So they never had a chance to learn about the history of their own countries, their own islands. And so, but that's not to say they were all blind and just went into this blind they some of them were were very political and wanted independence and wanted to get rid of the british and this was if they could show that they were as good as the white man and the white woman um in the armed services and could do the job then that would strengthen their argument for independence so there was a for some there was a very strong political motive
3: And what about the black people who didn't come from the colonies but actually lived in Britain when war broke out? I mean, what was it like for them?
4: It was the same as it was for everyone else in Britain. They were up against it. They, They knew they would have to fight, join up and fight or join different roles on the home front, stretcher bearers, air raid wardens. They wanted to take part. They felt that if they didn't, and the war was lost, they would be in trouble. And I think some of them knew what was happening to the Jews in Germany and probably black people in occupied Europe, which is a story that is never really touched upon. And so their fate would have been the same. It would have been awful.
3: And what was it like to be a black person in Britain in September 1939?
4: Again, it would depend on what, background you came from. Um, If you were a black middle-class person with an education, uh, you would have been looking for, hoping for a better quality of life. In, as I mentioned, the 1939 Register, you you have black middle-class people living in Hampstead. You have black working-class people living in Canning Town. Uh, So you had a real cross-section of people and I've also named their professions so you've got everything from hospital cleaners to doctors I mean it it was a real cross-section of class backgrounds and job um, occupation backgrounds so it it, so they were as similar to the British people I mean the same as
3: Sure. Now, now, this story is a, a, a kind of a personal resonance for you, doesn't it? Because um, as you note in the introduction to the book, you your adopted Aunt Esther. She was a black, black woman who gave up her job as a seamstress to become a, a, a fire watcher during the war. Now, I wonder if you could uh, just elaborate on that a little bit.
4: Aunt Esther was uh, a black Londoner, working class um, background, born into a very tight-knit, working-class community in Fulham, in West London. And my great-grandmother was white, but she was the matriarch, the mother figure in that community, and she knew Esther from when Esther was born. Esther's father was a Guyanese labourer. Her white mother died when she was very, very small. She didn't know her. Um, There was a tragedy in 1949 when her father was killed in a tragic accident during the London, at the height of the London Blitz. So granny said to Esther, look, you've got no family. Come and come and live with me, love. Um, We're going to the air raid shelter together. And so Esther became part of my family in 1941, but my family knew her because they were, they were neighbors. They all lived together, but these working class communities were very tight. They were like an extended family anyway, but Esther never met any of her Guyanese relations until long after the war. But it, but she didn't really have any problems in that community. She she worked as a seamstress, but in and she loved that job. She'd done that since leaving school. But in 1941, the same year she moved in with Granny, she would have been in her late 20s, and she was what they call a mobile woman because she wasn't married. So she had to give up her job as a seamstress and do war work. Her war work was actually hospital cleaner. She was a cleaner at Brompton Hospital. She cleaned the forces ward. And she would laugh her head off when she told me about the pranks that the RAF boys used to get up to with her. And and then in the evening, they would say to Esther, can you go and get us some fish and chips when the matron's off duty? (laughs) So she would tell me these wonderful stories, this sort of camaraderie that she had. But her war work... Also, entailed volunteering as a fire watcher on the roof of Brompton Hospital, and when I asked her about that, she said it, it was scary because the incendiary bombs are dropping, fire bombs, and 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 she had to deal with all of that.
3: How much racism did black people um, encounter during the Second World War? I mean, what what kind of reception did they get from the from the wider British public?
4: I would say, as I've said in the book, on the whole. Uh, although there were racist attitudes, some of them quite virulent. Um, I use the example of the vicar's wife in Western (laughs) Super, which is a horrible story, but the villagers would not entertain her racist views. I would say on the whole, for the duration of the war, the British people, with some exceptions, embraced the West Indians and the West Africans that came to this country to support them in wartime because most of them would be in uniform, and that really helped break down the barriers. The same thing happened when the thousands and thousands of African-American GIs came to this country and were treated appallingly by the American military. They were segregated. The British didn't like that. I mean, you see, we didn't segregate in the armed services. I'm not saying the armed services were always perfect. The RAF, for example, would not recruit men of colour until 1941. The Auxiliary Territorial Service, which is the women's branch of the army, would not recruit women of colour until 1943. There were these colour bars, as they were known then. We did discriminate, Um, but once... Black people were in uniform or were seen to be doing war work, whether it be air raid warden or stretcher bearer they were respected i think on the whole
3: now as you as you just mentioned um you write in the book that the arrival in Britain of tens of thousands of american g i s had a sort of a, quite an impact on the experiences of black people in britain i I just wonder if you could go into a little bit more detail on that, please.
4: The African Americans, um, well, they brought the Americans. The American military brought with them their racist practices. As I say, they were segregated, um, and a lot of the British people tried to protect them and support them. And some of the the the, the black West Indians and and others, uh, uh, black British people, w- were very supportive of them and. and so you had instances where there was friction. I think it was in 1944, the the, the famous Battle of Bamber Bridge. Um, and that involved a lot of friction between the white American military police and the black Americans who were going to the local village pub and integrating and making friends. And it caused a lot of friction that the white Uh, military police did not approve and it it ended up in violence terrible situations and there were examples of that they of course the Americans at that time had outlawed or had always outlawed mixed marriages you know in Britain we did not do that we did not outlaw mixed marriages so black and white could marry it may not have been socially acceptable in some quarters but it, it was not outlawed. But in America, it was. So if if a white woman was seen with an African-American GI, it could cause all sorts of problems. But what I discovered in the course of the research was that I think it was 1942, um, you had instances where African-American, sorry, where white American GIs would see a Jamaican or a Trinidadian walking along Oxford Street with a white girlfriend and they would literally cross over the road and punch him, assault him. Wow. And it got to such a to, uh, level of violence towards non-black Americans, um, like black British or, or Caribbean or African uh, men, servicemen, that they the government almost introduced a little badge, a Union Jack badge, for black British Caribbean-origin West African servicemen and women to wear so that white American GIs could differentiate. And if they saw them wearing this little Union Jack badge, they knew it was hands-off. They didn't introduce it, but it got that close, and it is just extraordinary what was going on. In wartime, and we also have to be fighting you see the british people on the whole knew what they were up against they were fighting the nazis they were fighting fascism um the americans come over and and do what what they have to do to support the allied war effort and you know let's not forget they made a lot of sacrifices too but they brought their racist practices and attitudes with them
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: Because it was a debate between older black servicemen and women from the Second World War. So Ulrich Cross was there with Lillian, with a younger generation of black people, teenagers, who were quite hostile to them, saying, why did you support the British when they were treating you so badly? And Lillian just came out with this statement because we'd have ended up in the ovens.
2: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored, Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Okay, why why, why do you think
3: historians tended to um, ignore black citizens' experiences during the Second World War? I mean, you, you, you write that um, for years British cinema, for example, has barely acknowledged the, the presence of black servicemen and women from Britain and its colonies in the Second World War. I mean, why is that? And, and do you think that will change?
4: I have a, a kind of simplified rationale for, for this. And I've said it in my other books. Um, I wrote a book a few years back on gay men's lives in the two world wars and what i said in that book was in 1949 the british people had gone through six years of hell um both on the front line uh and and at home on the home front and they wanted to get back to what they perceived to be normality—I've used normality with inverted commas—the pre-war, the pre-war Britain of cottages with roses around the door and Jesse Matthews f- musical films—and you know that that kind of idea of of old England, old with an e, England. And I think what happened was, in 1945, they just wanted to get back to what they saw as normality. So they wanted all the black West Indian and African servicemen and women to take that uniform off and go home, go away. They wanted women to go back into the kitchen and cook their husband's tea. They wanted gay men who were, by and large, accepted during the war in spite of the law that would imprison them. In, in many cases they served with honor and were out um almost immediately the war ended the law that put gay men in prison for just being gay uh, was reinforced um and led to the ni- early 1950s witch hunt where many many the arrests of gay men went up and up and up and went through the roof around sort of 1953 ending in in some cases with the suicide of Alan Turing, which we a lot of people now know about. So it was that and I can understand the thinking wanting to get back to normality after six years of hell. Um, so it then but it but it doesn't mean that it was acceptable. It wasn't acceptable. And then of course post-war the lives of these people changed. Women continue to want independence, gay men continue to to want the law to change, and black people begin to return to this country, particularly those that had been here and served during the war from Windrush 1948 onwards. But unfortunately, when we had this whole spate of films in the 1950s, all these wonderful black-and-white films, Dunkirk, Reach for the Sky, The Dam Busters, oh, so many of them, um, they would not portray black servicemen and women. And so we had black actors in this country, one of whom has just passed away at the age of 102, like Earl Cameron, wonderful actor who was in a lot of 50s British films, were totally excluded from these stories. And that set a precedent, I think, that still continues to this day, which is why in my book I criticise Dunkirk, the more recent film of Dunkirk, because Christopher Nolan did not have not even one black extra amongst the soldiers on the Dunkirk beaches. And if anyone wants to say, well, there weren't any, I mean, prove it. But it's not a documentary; it's a fiction film. Have you heard of Dramatic License? So I say all that in the book because I think we're still filmmakers are still very shy of doing that, of, of representing th- those black servicemen and women in populist films about the Second World War.
3: More generally, do you think the current events, recent events, and the the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement will accelerate the recognition of? black people's role, not just in the Second World War, but in British history more generally?
4: I would hope so. I want to be positive. I want to hope that the Christopher Nolans of this world, the filmmakers, that is, the history makers, the ones that write history books, will have their consciousness raised but there is a part of me, after having done this work for 30 years in this country, black British history books, that is. I mean, I started in 1991 with my Aunt Esther's story. That was the first book I ever worked on. I There's a part of me that is cynical and feels, no, because by and large, those people that make the films um, and write the history books are very and I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, so I don't mean to be offensive, but they're very white and very middle class. From a particular kind of perspective, they do need to have a sea change in their outlook and in their attitudes to this subject. And hopefully Black Lives Matter campaign will raise that consciousness, but I want to see it happen. I want to see it happen. I want to see evidence of it, but that will take time. In a year's time, if you ask me that question, we may have the answer. But at the moment, I'm hoping it will change, but there's a part of me that feels that it it it, it may not, to the extent that we would like it to.
3: Okay, one of the chapters of the book is called If Hitler Had Invaded. Um, in it, you describe sort of black and mixed-race people in Nazi Germany being imprisoned, sterilised, brutalised and murdered. How aware were black people in Britain and elsewhere of their probable fate if the Nazis had prevailed?
4: Lillian Bader, who was born in Liverpool in 1918, she was mixed race. Her Barbadian father, Marcus Bailey, had served with honour in the First World War in in the Merchant Navy, served the British in, in the First World War, and Lillian joined the WAFs the Women's Air Force, in 1941 and had a great time. She loved it. She was the one I I remember well going on television, BBC television. I think it was in 1997. And she just stated it because it was a debate between older black servicemen and women from the Second World War. So Ulrich Cross was there with Lillian. Uh, Billy Strachan, I think, was there with a younger generation of black people, teenagers, who were quite hostile to them, saying, why did you support the British when they were treating you so badly? And Lillian just came out with this statement because we'd have ended up in the ovens. And I thought, well, she's right. She knew what was happening. Um, Not all black people would have known. Um, Not many people were aware of the extent to which the Germans were doing this to to people. But it wasn't just the the Jewish community. I've mentioned gay men. Gay men ended up in concentration camps. But there were many people of African descent who were brutalised, who were incarcerated. Um, I was very good friends with a, a lovely singer, called Elizabeth Welch, who's in the book. Um, and she told me the story of her brother. She was American. They were, her and her brother were born in New York. But she settled in Britain and made her career here and was here all during the war, entertaining the troops. And she told me that her brother, John, was studying in Berlin, studying music, and she was helping to pay for his music studies. But unfortunately, he got caught up in Germany when the war broke out and couldn't get back to America and they put him in a concentration camp. The SS came with him and put him in a concentration camp and he survived. But he survived because after three years he was repatriated. There was an American, the American government traded off with the German government, German prisoners, we'll give you some German prisoners of war if you give us some of our Americans prisoners. Because not all prisoners of war in Germany were servicemen, they were they were civilians as well. So I knew about this um and did a bit more research. And it it and I but when I wrote the book, I realized oh no, when I realized a long time ago that the Operation Sea Line, I think it was called 1940, the invasion of Britain. You know, we were that close, we were half an hour from France, half an hour from being invaded. But Hitler Turned around and decided to invade Russia instead. We were lucky because we would have been invaded. And I started asking myself that question, what would have happened to my Aunt Esther if the Germans had invaded? And, that, and I did interview Norman Longmate, wonderful historian, who had written a book called If Britain Had Fallen to the Germans. And I asked him if he had considered what would have happened to the black British citizens. He said, no, I didn't, never crossed my mind. So I decided to write that chapter in the book and pose that question.
3: Okay, uh, Stephen, can we just um, talk about a couple of individuals uh, you mentioned in the book? Um, There's a guy called Ivor Cummings you describe as one of the most important and influential black men in wartime Britain. Why is that?
4: Ivor Cummings was born in Hartlepool of an African father and an English mother. Um, and he'd been quite politically active in Britain in the sort of 1930s, working with the, uh, students and black students and the League of Coloured Peoples. And so he, he was already, uh, well-versed in politics and, and was quite grand. I, he has been described as being rather like Noel Coward. He was gay, um. But he was like a Noel Coward type gay, if you get my meaning. <laughs> he was very grand, very posh, spook with that upper class English accent and and could could go places where a lot of Black people couldn't. But what Ivor did, he became involved with the Colonial Office because we had what was known as the Colonial Office in London. And then, and they would advise the government and advise civil servants on things that were going on with the Black community in Britain. And so Ivor became very um, busy, you know, doing work with them. And a lot of Black people would come to him with problems. So for example, one of the, things he did was he was approached by a group of West Indian men who had volunteered to come to this country to work in the East End of London in a war factory. Unfortunately, in the area that they were in, they were barred from the local pubs. No black men allowed. The colour bar. Unofficial. It wasn't in law. It was just one of those things. So they would congregate on the streets in the evening and, and socialise, maybe buy a few beers somewhere and and then the police would come and move them on or at worst harass them or at worst arrest them. So they were being treated very, very badly and so they went to Ivor Cummins um, and he did no more. He went down there. Some representatives went to see him at the colonial office and he accepted their invitation to go and talk to these men and as a result of that, this is just one of many, many, many things I ever did. He went to see the chief superintendent of police in the area, you know, the air, chief air raid warden, because they were being evicted from air raid shelters as well by nice. overzealous mm-hmm. air raid wardens. And so he sorted that out. And he, he became a kind of figurehead in Britain at, at, during wartime that, that anyone could turn to for help. Any black person could turn to for help. There were others. There were others like Dr. Howard Moody in the League of Colored Peoples, uh, Leary Constantine, and and they did amazing work during that period. And in fact, Ivor Cummins um, in 1948 was at Tilbury to welcome the Windrush passengers off the ship. And again, he's hardly ever mentioned in those Windrush narratives. And he's sort of known in some circles as the gay godfather of of, of the black community in Britain.
3: Could you tell us a little bit also about the uh, feminist poet and playwright Una Morrison?
4: Yes, Una Morrison is, never ceases to be fascinating. She was a very um, gifted Jamaican poet, dramatist, feminist. I mean, she was multi-talented and she wanted to get out of the colony, Jamaica, and come to Britain. She came here in 1932. By the time the war broke out in 1939, she was working for the BBC. She was was doing work on BBC radio and television, the the pre-war television service, which of course ended when the war broke out. But most importantly, in 1941, the BBC appoint her producer, of a long-running BBC radio series called Call in the West Indies, which was broadcast to the the North American region because the BBC had then what was known as its Empire Service. So you had Call in West Africa for the African Service and Call in the West Indies for the North American Service, which included uh, the Caribbean. And she would put Black, servicemen and women in touch with their loved ones back home. So they would come into the studio, um, read out letters to their loved ones on air. She would invite famous black people, musicians, singers, Ken Snake, Ips Johnson, Elizabeth Welch, into the studio to sing or talk. or And it was a marvel. But most importantly, uh, she started to introduce black literature into the programme. So by the end of the war, poets and literary figures in the Caribbean were being given opportunities to read their poems, their short stories on air. It was an amazing thing that she did. And she was also, in her private life, very keen to welcome servicemen and women to her home, uh, to meet with them, talk to them, make them feel that they were wanted. Um, So she was a real pioneering figure, very important figure.
3: Brilliant. And and finally, Stephen, um, how would you sum up the contribution of black people to the British war effort?
4: The contribution of black people to the British war effort is phenomenal. Um, I like to think I've done justice to it in my book Under Fire, but I know I've only scraped the surface. Far more research needs to be taken on board to find out about all the intricacies and details of of that story. My book, I'm not from an academic background, so people will be thrilled to know that there are no words ending in ology in my book. No, it's a serious point. I came into history through the back door. I'm, I mean, I'm sounding a bit like chip on the shoulder, but so be it. Um, no, I came into, into it through Aunt Esther's story, my first book in 1991. Um, and that was her telling her own story uh, based on recordings that I'd made, and that was published. And that's how I learned to write history black history, gay history books as well, first-hand testimony every time. If you can't interview the people, because now it's more difficult because that generation have virtually gone, then you go and find it. And you can find uh, interviews in archives, in books that touch on this subject. And that work really needs to continue... Um, Maybe more institutional research needs to be done, but uh, but I'm glad in my book I've been able to highlight the narrative through their voices with with contextualisation for myself, and I I hope I've achieved something of, of of that in the book. But it's very important to me to stress that you don't have to go to Oxford or Cambridge to be a historian. I learnt that early on, thank goodness, and I've just carried on doing what I do in the best way I can.
0: That was Stephen Bourne. Under Fire, Black Britain in Wartime, 1939-45. is out now, published by the History Press. You can find plenty more on Black History and Black History Month on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow when Turtle Bunbury will be telling me some stories from Irish history.